Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Honora. I'm almost an elite athlete. I did an Ironman in 11 hours. So we were single dudes, we're New York City firemen, and he was a successful business owner who owned multiple bars. I guess I had it really good. This is the story of Matt Long, a New York City firefighter, triathlete, and entrepreneur who was living the life of Riley until one Christmas morning when it was snatched away from him. Matt was literally battling for his life. They gave him like a 1% chance of survival. I have no dignity left. I got a friend squeezing cream of wheat in my ass. You know, he's definitely has had the most injuries of anybody that I've treated. If you've ever met somebody with a singular focus determined towards achieving one goal, and that's what they dedicated all of their time to, you know what it's like to be around Matt Long. A quick warning, this episode deals with mature language, and it's going to get really rough. But hang in there because the payoff is worth the pain. I'm Sylvester Stallone, and this is The Comeback. Okay, so my name is Shane McKeown. I met Matty Long in the fire department basketball league. Right away, he was the typical Brooklyn guy, all bark, did not stop running his mouth the whole time. And I just said to myself, I could turn this guy into a pretzel if I wanted to. I called him the fat Mark Jackson. Mark Jackson was a point guard for the Knicks who wasn't your typical point guard. He was a heavy set point guard, but he had unbelievable skills. And I said, you were the, the version of Mark Jackson in the fire department because Matty wasn't, he wasn't exactly fit at the time. You know, I would describe him as having a dad bod without being a dad. I was always an athlete. I wasn't always fit, especially after September 11th. I kind of put on a couple extra pounds. And a, f a good friend of mine, Noel Flynn, he had called me up and said, hey, do you want to do a triathlon? I called him at the right time because he was just like, I've been dying to get back into shape. So you know what? Fuck it. I'll do it. And um, we had no idea what we were doing. Didn't have a bike and didn't know how to swim. So I had about eight months to get ready and I dove into it. I remember the first night of training in Central Park. I'm looking at people go by me that don't look fitter than I am, but they're doing it. And I was like, wow, like I'm out of shape. We realized how shitty we were at triathlons. <laughs> so myself and Matt, we committed immediately that we were going to continue doing more races. I'm running in Central Park, and wouldn't you know it, I hear the same barking, hey, what are you doing? Oh my God, it's that guy from the basketball court. He had totally changed. 
he had changed his whole body. He had changed his whole lifestyle and he was no longer a dad bod. And I'm like, holy cow. And then that was it. The rest was history. We became uh, real close friends after that. Hi, I'm Eileen Long. I'm Matt's mom. Uh, what I say is he had everything going for him. He was a free spirit. He was a firefighter. He was a triathlete. He did own bars. He was living La Via Loca. And um, he was handsome then, and he's still handsome. He was everything. I was on top of the world. I was 178 pounds. I was fit. I guess I had it really good. I'm 38 years old. I need to preface that this was Christmas time and I enjoyed the party. Even though I was more health conscious and fitness oriented, I, I didn't miss parties. I was at a Christmas party down in Chelsea and probably that's about two o'clock in the morning. I get three and a half hours of sleep, maybe. So I knew getting up early was going to suck. I knew that training session of the day was going to suck. But I was focused. So the rule was, if you weren't at the rock by 5.15 in the morning, the guys left and the person who was left behind has to make breakfast for everybody for when they get back from their training. Maddie had called me that night before and said, listen, I'm going to try and make the workout, but I decided I'm going to ride my bike in. I'm like, all right, you know, no problem. See you later. Be safe. See you in the morning. Seven million commuters who rely on the nation's largest mass transit system search for other ways to get to work. Tonight, Roger Toussaint and the TWU have taken the illegal and morally reprehensible action of ordering a citywide strike of a mass transit system. Rush hour will begin in a few hours. I will join New Yorkers going to work by walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to Lower Manhattan. Let's show our determination by walking, cycling, or carpooling. Okay, so December 22nd, 2005. It was the third day of the transit strike. It was cold. It was windy. I put on a lot of gear. I lived on 48th and 3rd. Said goodbye to uh, the doorman that was in charge of my, the morning shift. And off I went. Riding your bike in New York City is amazing. You know, I talk about my life as a pinball machine. This is, this is a video game. There are some very talented hardcore cyclists that zip in and out without fear. I wasn't that aggressive, but I did make good time in the city streets. You had to be aware of everything. Whether it's pedestrians walking, car doors opening, taxis, just pulling over for the fair, weaving and bobbing in front of people, people yell, all right, assholes. It was fun and scary at the same time. 5.30 in the morning rolls around, and there's no Maddie. And we're like, okay, let's go. Tommy, Tommy, let's give him, let's give him five more minutes. I'm like, what, what? No, let's get out of here. No, I want, I want him to make us breakfast. Let's go, let's go. Because Maddie could cook, too. Tommy's like, no, 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 no. Let's give him five more minutes. I wasn't gunning it. I was probably going 15 to 16 miles an hour. What I remember was coming up the right side of Third Avenue, seeing this big white bus. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's 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 gonna turn. 
And I remember putting my left arm up, starting to bang on the window. And then, boom. And then the phone rang. Tommy picked up the phone and his face dropped. The person on the other end was like, are you waiting for Matty Long? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The bike that I was riding became a weapon that cut me in half. So it sliced me, very painful to talk about, but from my anus to my sternum. My abdominal wall was torn out, my rectum was torn out, and it sliced my femoral artery. So I'm bleeding to death. I'm uh, Jim Long. I'm a firefighter for a total of 27 years. And I happen to be the younger brother of Matt Long. So I got that phone call from what we call the Fire Department Operations Center. And uh, they, they kind of told me that Matt was hurt. And he says, uh, oh, yeah, just want to let you know, it's not serious. It's a broken leg. He did that to try to calm me down. So uh, I kind of, you know, I knew that that approach. I knew how that played out. You know, we would we try to make sure people were safe in their travels or, or there was a timing of how you would notify people of how serious something is or was. So it started to, you know, become clear to me that, you know, Matt was a very serious accident. So uh, I got myself together, got dressed, and I began to drive into uh, the city, to New York Hospital. Well, I'm Dr. Somi Ichimpati, so I would have been the lead trauma surgeon for Matt. There's different reasons that people die from a trauma as severe as this. The first 24 hours, people die usually from blood loss. Somebody has six liters of blood in their body, but over the first 12 hours, he received uh, 50 or 60 units of blood. I started to speak with a uh, hospital representative, and I, I had to tell her and I guess convince her that I was not only a member of the fire department, I showed her my ID, but I'm also the brother of the firefighter that was just brought in. 
And she, you know, sort of put a guard down. Sorry, guys. She put a guard down and she told me that he, we're doing everything we can. And at that time, I looked towards the left and there was a, you know, a, a room that Matt had been in. He's already gone from there. And, and yeah, there was blood everywhere. Some point in time, Dr. Ichupati and hospital staff came down to talk to us and uh, he grabbed my parents and myself and he told us what, what, what we were dealing with. He said there was massive internal injuries um, and uh, that they were trying to address the uh, internal bleed. We are going to do all we can, and uh, I will let you know if there gets to be a point where we feel we can't do anything else and we're not there yet. I was very uncomfortable with how he was doing because he had seemed to stabilize a little bit earlier. And uh, we took him back to the operating room, and, and we found, I remember distinctly, uh, two large blood vessels bleeding in his pelvis uh, that we tied off. Well, when we first saw Matt, he, he looked like a mummy. He was completely wrapped up in bandages. His head looked like it was five times the size and the machines were going and I didn't think that we were going to make it. Big white light above me and I, and I, I just couldn't put together what had happened. In my head, I was like, oh, I, I'll get out of here tomorrow. I got to go home. But I looked down at my leg, external fixators holding the bones together so they'd heal. That went in the open wound of my abdomen to stabilize my pelvis. I broke my right shoulder, shattered it. I broke my left leg, hip to heel, bones, compound fracture. My pelvis shattered. I had a trait a hole in my throat to help me breathe. You know, they reassured me that I had many more surgeries coming. They basically said to me that you were, you were split open like a can. And this is as bad as it gets. Right now, you need to lay down, relax, and let us do the best we can for you. My doctor says to me sometimes, my first order of business is to save your life. Your quality of life is up to you. You know, that, that put me into a, a, a very bad mental state because I was always moving. I was always, you know, free to do what I want. And now I got metal sticking out of my abdomen and my legs and a ventilator on my throat feeding tube in my left side. I, I, I remember being pretty scared about going to see him. The curtain was kind of pulled past the bed. So there was a guy in a bed with a curtain like halfway pulled across. And I walked right past the bed thinking that was an old man in the bed to go around the curtain to the second bed. And there was no second bed. And there was Maddie in the first bed. It wasn't, it wasn't the same guy I had seen. He looked like an 85-year-old uh, cancer patient. 
and I was just like, I didn't know what to do. And I froze. I, all the blood drained out of me, and you know, Maddie said a couple of things to me. I, I was teary-eyed, and I, he was like, "He's like, I'm gonna be all right, kid." And I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" I felt so helpless because here I am, like you know, one of his best friends and um, training partners, and I'm sure he looked at me and just like, "Oh damn, like look at no, I killed to be in your shoes." You know, here I am walking in, no problem. You know. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to tell him that I went for a run or anything like that, you know? I wouldn't even talk about any of that stuff, you know? Uh, and then frankly, I, I didn't really do much that year because I just wasn't really interested. And you lost sort of your training partner and friend like that. It, you know, it took a lot out of me to kind of even be interested in the sport. My family was always there. But then five, six o'clock, people would come in to visit. I did turn away a lot of people, but I hope most of them understand. I just wasn't in the mood to hear, oh, if anyone can get through this, you can. In my head, I go, how, how the fuck do you know? Were you hit by a bus? You know, that's, that was the mental state I was in. I wasn't, I wasn't good time Charlie. I didn't want to hear it. I was battling with why this fucking thing happened to me. And not why, like, it shouldn't happen to me, but why did I live? Okay. So um, I'm Laureen at the time, Acevedo, now Pace. I'm an occupational therapist. And if you're not sure exactly what that means, basically our role is to help retrain people to do their everyday tasks, getting out of bed and brushing their teeth or shaving their face. I could tell that he was going to be tough to engage. He seemed angry, barely made eye contact. It's just one of those situations and cases where you don't even really know what to say to the person because like, you're like, Hey, how you doing? Like, you're not doing well at all. Like I know that. <laughs> and triathlete, firefighter, athletic guy, good looking guy. It was just, kind of devastating and I could see it in him that he was just devastated. They had a mock room for for an apartment. They had a mock car to hail a cab. How am I going to get in and out of cabs? How am I going to function in society? This is a guy who ran a 313 who did an Ironman and now I'm practicing getting in and out of a car or reaching to the top shelf. One example of our dynamic was, you know, he, he'd go through some exercises and then he'd say, you know, can you pass me that Gatorade? And I'd say, no, you need to get it yourself. Go reach for it and get it yourself. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just kind of that push that I was giving him where something as simple as that, I would say, no, you need to do it yourself. You need to teach yourself how to do it. I, I left almost exactly five months. I was released May 22nd. So May 21st, they're preparing me to go home. And I was nervous. And my brother Jim came and said, listen, this has been very well covered in the media. There's going to be media coverage of you leaving. And I didn't want it. And that's usually not me. I'm usually, I have no problem. Who wants to talk to me? Yeah. They afforded to map what is usually offered to firefighters or police officers, first responders, to get hurt in the line of duty. 
And that was a sort of send-off. They took me down the elevator when the elevator doors opened. To the sound of bagpipes, firefighter Matthew Long walked out of New York Presbyterian Hospital on his own after five months and an accident that nearly killed him. I can only, I can only say that I, I really wish this was the end. And I know it's not. Uh, Dr. Lord, let me know. You know, it's a two-year journey. Over 100 people lying the hallways as my brother pushed me in a wheelchair, clapping, bagpipes. Every guy in my firehouse was there. My fire truck was outside. My brother had an old classic car, and he picked me up. We went home in, in his old Ford Galaxy convertible with the top down praying that it didn't stall. <laughs> but it, 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 was, it was an amazing send-off. Not sure that I completely deserved it, but it, for that half hour, it lifted my spirits. So I leave the hospital, and I go back to my apartment. And my brother, Eddie, he's also a young firefighter. And he moved in with me. I haven't had too many talks with him post all this happening about what it was like for him. I can only imagine. My name is Eddie Long. I'm a New York City firefighter, brother of Matt Long. It was an easy ask for me. So I was 25 years old at the time. I learned day one it was going to be really hard. He was pretty much confined to the wheelchair for a majority of his day. We took care of business. We set him up, wanted to go down, lay down, okay? And then, you know, now we're going to mosey around his apartment and get used to being where my place is going to be in life here. Then we had some dinner, and then he went down for bed that night. I'm in the living room watching TV, laying on the couch, and uh, I hear him moving around. I go get in. What do you What do you need? What do you need? And uh, Matt's in the bathroom. He's attempting to clean out his colostomy bag. That was probably one of the heavier insecurities of this whole process. That bag was weighing heavy on his mind mentally. I mean, I get it. Uh, you know, we take for granted the the normal things we do of human life. So he's attempting to clean out the bag. He can't stand on his own two feet. You know, he's making a mess in the bathroom. So. Got him back together, got him into bed. He took care of himself, putting it back together, a new bag and all that. But now I, I'm going into the bathroom and I got to clean up after him. I know full-fledged that, you know, he was more concerned about me being on his bathroom floor, cleaning up after him. And uh, in reality of things, I should be more concerned of him, you know, and he, you know, he should be more concerned of himself. Uh, so that, that, that day, that was day one. And we realized that, you know, we, we got a road ahead of us. From that moment on, I knew that this is for real. He's going to really depend on me here. And we kind of broke the ice of, listen, Matt, you need me here. I'm here for a reason. When it's your family, you know, you got to do what you got to do for them. He would have done anything for me. You know, I just knew it was my opportunity to uh, give him thanks for everything he ever did or showed me in life. And to tell him that, listen, you know, we're family and... And we'll get there. Some of the things I was struggling with was that life hasn't stopped for everyone else because Matt was run over by a bus. And friends 
co-workers, firemen, they were trying to get me out. They were trying to keep me engaged. But I never felt like I was actually living. We would invite him to everything and excuses, make up things, uh, you know, and it was always the same thing. It was, no, can't do it, I'm too weak, I don't feel good, my stomach's a mess. He was just getting more and more and more depressed. And he just got quieter and quieter. I mean, this is the guy who everyone wanted to be in the room with. Then when we eventually were successful to get him out, he was just not the same guy. He was very, very self-conscious of his colostomy bag, and it was heartbreaking. We all spoke to his family, spoke to all the circles of his closest friends, trying and thinking, what can we do? What can we do to snap him out of it? So it was, it was tough. I, I didn't know, I didn't know uh, if he was going to pull through that. I had a colostomy bag, and it was high up on my left side. So if I did accept a very local invitation, I wore a double, triple X shirt to hide it. I was constantly aware of the odor that if the adhesive loosened or came apart from my skin, that I would smell. Your, your, your intestines are just sticking out of a hole in your side. And it just comes out. So a worry of embarrassment, that was constantly on my mind. And I always had Eddie where I could go, I got I, I to gotta get out of here. Uh, I, let me just say goodbye because I wasn't happy with my situation. A few months go by. I'm, I'm, I'm visiting my colorectal doctor. I'm still hoping for the reversal. I'm worried that the longer leave it detached, the harder it is to put back together. So they took me for some tests and well, fingers crossed, fingers crossed, he's gonna have good news. But the end result was that doctor saying, there's nothing more we can do for you. You know, you're gonna have to learn to live with this colostomy bag. And I was, I was devastated. My parents had took me to that doctor appointment. And after it, they took me to Turtle Bay, which was one of the bars I owned. And that's when I said to my mom and dad, I said, you know, I wish you had prayed for me to die. I can't live like this. And my dad started to weep a little bit. And my, my mom, she just put her hands on the table, squeezed her jaw, and said, enough's enough. I kind of blew my top, trying to remember everything I said, because I was kind of like in an Irish temper. So uh, I, you know, I just told him we wouldn't tolerate it. And if that's what he wanted to do, go back to your room and stay there by yourself. You want to be a miserable son of a bitch? The rest of your life, do it by yourself. We're done. I, I started to cry. And I, I don't know, in my head, I was thinking maybe I just wanted a hug. <laughs> uh, well, 
he wasn't too happy. He was kind of looking at me like, you're not me and you don't know. And, and you know, I said to him, he, he has so much to offer in life and that life is getting better and other people have suffered too. So now it's time for you to stop, uh, knock off the, uh, <laughs> the SHIT and get better. And looking back, I'm glad she didn't hug me. Because if she hugged me and rewarded the pity, maybe I'd still be in a wheelchair. It was a tough goodbye. Wasn't the normal, I love you and we'll talk to you soon. It was anger, depression on my side. And it took about two or three weeks before I realized she was right. I was desperate to have some sort of banter with Maddie on a regular basis, whether I send a, a phone call or a text that it would come back on a regular basis, and it didn't. It would just kind of go into this black hole. And so finally, I sent him this text. I said, Maddie, I feel guilty asking you this, but you're the only person that I know that I trust I'm training for my first Ironman. It must feel horrible hearing that coming from me because I know you'd want to be doing it yourself, but I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm looking for a coach. Is there any way you'd be interested in that? And just took a shot in the dark. And it was like one of the hardest things to do because it's kind of like, am I really rubbing this guy's face in it? And uh, he got back to me and he said, uh, not interested. And I said, okay, I apologize. Sorry for asking. I, I won't bring it up again. And a, and a couple of days had gone by and he had sent me a text and he said, you know, what, 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 what kind of mileage are you putting on the bike? And I said, you know, I'm up to 40 miles. He's like, how many miles did you run off the bike? I'm like, I didn't run any miles off the bike. He's like, Every time you got to get off the bike, you have to go for a run. You never get off the bike. And not, I don't care if it's a mile or if it's a half a mile, you get off that bike, you have to run. And I just replied, okay, coach. And the next day, hey, coach, I did 35 miles. I did a five-mile run off the bike. Okay, what was your time? What was, and I just kept feeding him, feeding him, feeding him. And he kept... And then one day, I got busy. I had a life. I, I didn't reply. And sure enough, I got the text. Hey, FO, what the hell? Where's my text? What'd you do? And that was it. Once I got him cursing at me, I knew I had him hook, line, and sinker, fish on. He was all in. And it was the greatest. I had, I had my little version of Maddie back. And he helped me. He coached me. And it was it was fantastic. I'm very glad that friends didn't give up on me because I didn't really know how much I needed them to fight the depression. But uh, many times I said no. And as I started to say yes, that was probably the beginning of the mental healing. But I knew I was doing myself no good by harping on the things I thought I would never have. And I needed to focus on getting better. And that's what I did. So 
I'm now thinking about how I will improve my situation. And here's how my doctor approached me. He said, you've trained for marathons. You've trained for Ironmans. You know it takes time to accumulate the distance to withstand the task and the pain at hand. And I was like, yeah, I, I do that. I do that. What are you getting at? And he's like, I think I can reconstruct your body and reverse that colostomy. But you're going to have to train. So I underwent surgery where he magically reconstructed my sphincter. For two years, the lower half of the track was asleep. I had to train my rectum to hold stool. And he showed me how to do it in the office. I couldn't do it on my own. So I had to enlist a friend who I told him I'll take the name to the grave. But I had to ask the friend to come to my apartment and inject cream of wheat into my rectum. And as soon as the task was over, I was like, get out, get out of my apartment. And then I took care of the rest. I had to keep a journal, how much he was able to get in, how long I was able to hold it. And I had to journal that and show my doctor. After two, three months, he said, we're doing all the right things. I was like, oh God, doc, this is killing me. You know, I, I have no dignity left. I got a friend squeezing cream of wheat in my ass. And he goes, trust me. And, and he did it. He, he put me back together. Okay, reversal, stomach, closed, things are getting better. So I, I no longer like the winter and the slippery surface because if I hit a slippery surface, my leg would just shoot out. So I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, if I'm going to keep progressing, I need to find a warm weather state that I could keep doing rehab with no interruption. I emailed a lot of places. I told all of them that I wanted to run again. And most of them said, love to help you, but you need to have realistic expectations. Mark and Kyle emailed me back saying, we would never tell anyone they couldn't run again. That's all I needed to hear. Got on a plane and I wound up in Arizona. Hi, I'm Mark Delosio. Hello, this is Kyle Herrig. When we first met Matt, he couldn't stand up by himself without crutches. Our big focus was to help reshape the connection between his brain and his muscles, right? So the way I would shape it is there was some amnesia there between his brain and his musculature where they forgot how to fire. We spent a lot of time with him in an upright position challenging his ability to initiate muscle contractions in his lower legs. Most patients would come in, you know, two, three days a week. When Matt moved out here, he came like five or six days a week. I think he might even came on Saturdays, but he was there for what, Mark, four or five hours at a time, I think. He was all in. And yeah, he became a fixture within our clinic and the other patients started to know him. And I, I think started to be motivated by him as well. If you've ever met somebody with a singular focus determined towards achieving one goal, and that's what they dedicated all of their time to, 
you know what it's like to be around that long. One day after like three months, I said, hey, I told you guys I want to run again. When's that going to happen? And they both looked at us like, hey, you're ready now. Let's go. We knew this big day was coming. Mark had told him we're going to either do a mile or three falls, whichever comes first. And obviously with Matt's determination, he was uh, he was not going to let falling be an option. So, you know, that day came and uh, I knew it was going to be something special, obviously. We went outside on Tempe Town Lake on the canal. We walked out and Mark on one side, myself on the other side. I know we wanted to stay close to him just in case he went down. He obviously had a little bit of hobble in the leg and we got out and we could see the half mile point down there. And I think we said, all right, you got to get down there and come back. I think he was so focused on, I got to get this foot lifted up. I got to pick this foot up. If I drag this foot, I'm going to fall. We did it. We got down to the other end. We said, okay, we got to turn around and come back. And he made it. And banged out a mile. They were pumped. I, I was okay. I wasn't pumped, but I was happy. I felt like his whole mindset changed from then because he was like, okay, I did a mile. I've done it. I'm on my way. I'm recovering. He gave max effort. He moved forward. He didn't fall. He ran a mile and everything just grew from there. There were a few people in my life that would really appreciate the fact that I was able to run a mile. So Noel was one of the first calls. He says, hey, Noel, um, look at I just want to let you know I ran my first mile. And I was like, no way. It's fucking unbelievable. And he's like, he's like, it took me like 22 minutes or something. And uh, I said, no, no chance, dude. You did a mile. It's insane. And he probably thought I was crazy. And they said, what's next? I said, the marathon. Like, Matt, what the fuck? How about a 5K or a turkey trot? And he's like, no, fuck that. I said, I, I want to run the marathon in November, and, and I want you to run with me. I said, I need to close the door on this bus. And the only way I'm going to do it is if I can go back to be who I was and end it on my terms. I was like, dude, of course I'm in, you know? And um, his accomplishments and seeing him progress got me back into running again, you know? It was just like, it motivated me, inspired me. I was like, you know what? Look at it. Matt's going to double down his training. I'm going to do the same, you know? It was just so awesome to see Matt's real personality come back. So I was able to run a mile and my time in Arizona was up. I'm coming back to New York City how do I get to the next step? Who can help me run? Jim Wharton. And he said, mentally, you're going to finish. If you have to crawl, all I have to do is get you past the pain. He goes, so let's just put some work in. No fancy equipment. It was all about isolating the muscle and say, let's fire this up. So Jim took me to Central Park, and we worked on mechanics of running. So I was doing training with Jim, and then I would go to the gym with Noel and take a two-hour spin class, spend two hours on an elliptical, take ice baths, do things to, to help my body and build my endurance. Yeah, you know, I knew it was going to be a long day. Regardless of the outcome, it was a huge mental breakthrough. Like I was involved in that community again. I was back.
families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, marathon morning. Gun goes off three hours early for me. And off we went. We were coming across the bridge in the fire department bus, going to the starting line. And Maddie was just literally at the apex of the bridge at mile one. And I mean, we almost broke the windows in the bus. Slamming on the glass, banging, rolling the horn. And he just put his fist up in the air and just kept shuffling along. And it was just, uh, it was just incredible. By the time we cross the bridge into Manhattan, First Avenue is, is slammed, millions of people, the bars are, are empty and out. Now, remember, I was in the bar business. Every bar had a Budweiser or Bud Light banner, had my name on it, good luck. So there was constant reminder uh, of encouragement. There was also a constant reminder that, hey, I, I, I got a lot to lose here. I don't wanna, I don't wanna not make it. Most of the race, was like that, picking up the vibe from the crowd, moving forward with a feeling of not wanting to disappoint myself or let down the people that I was really running for. And that was the firefighters that helped my family, my medical professionals that saved my life. I wanted to show them that their sacrifices didn't go unnoticed until the pain really started hitting it. But the big moment was around mile 25 and a half, Central Park West, and I just stopped. When Matt said he was gonna run the New York City Marathon, we thought he was outright crazy. But, you know, Matt always was able to say, I'm gonna do this. Sure enough, he ran so hard and put so much into it, he uh, rebroke his foot doing it. I didn't say anything. I don't know what was going through my head, but I was in pain. I wanted to quit. The forward progress thing was out but I could hear the finish line. It was either Noel or Frank, it could have been both of them, kind of came up on my side and said, what's going on? And I just shook my head and I said, I don't know if I can do it. And they said, you've come so far, dig deep. You, you gotta do this. Everyone is waiting. I'm, I'm not sure if it was me hearing them or me hearing the finish line. And I could hear it, I was that close. And I just started going again. And I hobbled across that finish line at seven hours and 21 minutes. 
And I'm back. The bus didn't win. He just realized what an inspiration he was and how many people were reaching out to him to thank him for sharing his story and and remind him what he's done for them. I think at that point, he just thought like, wow, this is awesome, you know, and this is sort of my calling. I'm married now with three kids. Uh, At this point, I had formed a foundation called I Will. My goal with it was to tell my story so that people wouldn't give up. And with the right attitude, the right mindset, anything's possible. And I'm living that creed to show them that you can do that. His motivation, his desire, his determination, sometimes stubbornness to just keep moving forward is very infectious. As much as we portray Matt as being the Superman, and he is a Superman, he's the most mentally tough human being I've ever met. I don't think it would have happened if he hadn't had both his family behind him and the fire department family. I think he needed both. He's, he's gotten back to his old self. It's a Cinderella story. I'm extremely lucky to have the support crew and social network that I had. I, I think that's a huge part of my success in the comeback. Back in the day, I was getting people drunk, and now I'm trying to get people healthy. And I do that because I firmly believe that I wasn't always training for Boston, for an Ironman. I was training for life. And you need to be fit to be able to push yourself through unexpected obstacles. And I'm living proof of it. The Comeback is brought to you by Imperative Entertainment and is created, written, and edited by Giles Andrew and Elliot Watson of Honora Productions. Executive producers are Sylvester Stallone and Braden Aftergood of Balboa Productions, Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment, and Trevor Groth of 30 West. The Comeback is produced by Honora Productions and Balboa Productions in association with 30 West. Original music for the series composed by Dan Powell, sound design and sound mixing also by Dan Powell. Poster design and graphics by Dana Kim and Ricardo Imperial. Special thanks to Matt Long, Eddie Long, Jim Long, Eileen Long, and any Long we failed to mention. Special thanks also to Shane McKeown, Dr. Sumi Ichempati, Carl Herrig, Mark Delosio, Lauren Payas, and the New York City Fire Department. Additional thanks to Ryan Abushi, Dawn Bishwell, Alex Witherell, Charles Denton, and Kenny Kusiak for his song titled Elsa Track 6. Key art photography of Sylvester Stallone by Michael Putland. Narration engineered by Skylar Kilborn. Please subscribe, download and share and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. The 
Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.